0: Hello everybody, this is Ed here from the What's Real podcast. I'd like to thank our listeners, uh, as well as Jared and Cam, for indulging me here for a moment. Uh, I've been a horror movie fan since I was a kid, and I've told stories about it before, but a major factor in me cultivating a love for horror movies when I was a kid was discovering Fangoria Magazine. Uh, I used to get issues at a local flea market for a quarter apiece, and uh, this all started in around 1988, summer of 88 for me. Uh, It was the first year I was allowed to see R-rated movies theatrically by my parents. uh, And I really got into horror movies at this time. Um, I also had an uncle who was a big mom-and-pop video store guy, so I was able to see a lot of stuff through him. This really gave me the bug for horror movies. And I really didn't have much of a guide outside of other kids in my neighborhood or that I went to school with um, or just going and looking at the video store. But as I said, that changed in the summer of 1988 with my discovery of Fangoria Magazine. As I mentioned, I was finding back issues from like 82 to about 86 or so. Uh, I read through everything cover to cover. Uh, I would write titles in a notebook that I would take to the video store with me as a kid. Uh, But a major catalyst in my discovery of horror films was no other uh, than Uncle Bob Martin of Fangoria Magazine. He was the editor at the time. He led me to movies that i still love as an adult and there's no doubt that he helped shape some form of my cinematic view fast forward to about 2004 i was developing a website project uh, with my co-host here on the show jared and a friar's named russ uh, that would eventually be called blood type online it was a learning experience for us we really didn't know what we were doing and me personally i had very little knowledge on how to actually write minus basic english and writing comprehension in school uh, I knew even less uh, about how to write about films, uh, but I got lucky pretty early on because people. The first was a guy who was a writer and a director and someone I considered a friend, in, and his name was Andy Kopp. Um He passed away years ago, and I miss him dearly. The other guy was Uncle Bob Martin. I couldn't believe the amount of time he spent reading and giving me feedback on the writings that I had sent to him. I'm forever grateful for that. I also appreciate his sense of humor and how humble he was about his own work. I was recently devastated when I found the passing of Uncle Bob Martin. He was a very nice man who made a mark on an entire generation of horror movie fans such as myself, well before fandom was a thing that people gave value or respect to. So I personally wish my condolences to the friends and family of Robert Uncle Bob Martin. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing you and speaking with you again. Rest in peace. Episode 32 is dedicated in the memory of Robert Uncle Bob Martin. What's real? What's real? What's real? <laughs> the real question is what's, real? what's real? what's up everybody welcome back it is episode 32 of the what's real podcast thank you for joining us as we sit down this week we got a jam-packed show as usual i am your host ed demko along with my co-host my main man with the motherfucking plan himself the j jared bajoris what's going on brother
1: good and pumped up again hey it's another one of those weeks ready to go we're jam-packed and loaded Shows on steroids this week, episode thirty-two, talking about a lot of topics. So, can't wait to chop the shit with you,
0: hey y'all. We got a solid show as usual. We're gonna do the second week of the thirty-day wrestling challenge, days eight through fourteen. Um, we are going to do part one of a review of a very expansive documentary that just premiered on Shutter uh, this last week. It's called "In the Search of or In Search of Darkness." Uh, That's really cool. So we'll be doing... uh, Because they go through the years. I figure the best way to do it would be do 80 through 85. And then we'll do, obviously, 86 through 89 next week. And also, Thursday Night Prime, we got Terror in Beverly Hills from 1989 with Frank Stallone barely. But we'll get into that later. And, of course, we have some goofs as well, like we do every week. But the J, we got tons of shit going on this week, man. First up... Uh, I don't know if it's the biggest story of the week, but it's a story thats it pertains to the show. So if you guys have been listening since the beginning, one of the things you might remember that we did on our or some of our earlier episodes is we had full week to week coverage of the XFL. Well, it just came down yesterday that uh, Redbird Capital, uh, the Rock, and the Rock's ex-wife, Danny Garcia, have purchased it for $15 million. Um, and one of the things that I saw that I already thought was interesting, man, I don't know if you saw this or not. They're looking to play again next year, and they're already talking about doing it in a bubble with eight teams. Um, they're Like, to me already, they're like on the ball. So, um, uh, you know, The Rock is pretty much a gold mine at this point, no matter what he does, seems to uh, do very well. Um, I'm, I'm all for it. And I also heard too, that they were apparently the only bidder.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, man. It was breaking news kind of came out of nowhere, you know, sparked up on, uh, on Twitter. And I started digging into some articles as we say all the time, got to do the research, get all the the facts straight on what's going on. And, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, man, it seems like they're on point already because that, that was my first thought. Hey, Ed was like, I mean, that's kind of weird time to buy a goddamn entire sports league you know during the pandemic because again it just goes back to the fact that we don't know where we're going to be in 2021 i mean everybody as always man i I keep ranting about it but it's it's the facts like everybody keeps making these assumptions like oh everything's going to be good in 2021 we'll be back to normal a year from now and there's no guarantee to that Uh, i very much hope so but we don't know but again for them to announce that it's going to be in a bubble um, considering that we might still be in a, a pandemic kind of situation and not be able to have a live audience and things like that. It's definitely some good, solid forward thinking.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just shows you that they're clearly preparing to move on with the league. Like they're already, you know, they got a plan in place and, and whatnot. And and of course too, I, I thought this was kind of funny. I already saw the conspiracy theorists out there uh, saying that this is the kind of thing that like, we're going to see the rock eventually, do business with Vince McMahon again pertaining to the league but I, I mean I don't know if there's any truth to that or anything I think people are just kind of speculating but yeah I don't foresee the rock and uh a, 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 like a financial institution type company putting all this money into the XFL just to give it back to Vince or sell it back to Vince yeah, later right. or something I don't But uh, but nonetheless, man, I thought that was cool news. And uh, I don't know about you, but I like when I saw the rocks name pop up there, I'm like, well, that was pretty fucking unexpected.
1: Yeah, completely, man. And and as you mentioned, there's a lot of different moving parts, a lot of different factors involved. Um, You know, we still got a ways to go, obviously, before they launch this thing. Uh, but definitely really interested because like you mentioned, we covered it thoroughly on the podcast. You and I as uh, huge pro football fans were interested in the XFL and enjoying it, you know, for random Saturday afternoon entertainment and things like that. And we, 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 more more liked the XFL, I'd say, for both of us than, than disliked it. You know, there's definitely a lot of aspects that um, were, were negatives, like with anything. But but I, I enjoyed it, and I don't think it's a bad thing to have an alternative to the NFL.
0: No, I don't either. Uh, I definitely uh, I think that there's a reason for it. And I think that, you know, it's definitely could serve a purpose that is beneficial to also the National Football League, too. Um, and I'm sure that the league is probably going to change a lot of its focus now, too, without Vince McMahon being the owner. Um, you know, it's just, they're just trying to make it a thriving business and that's it. There's no other alternative, anything to this. So, um, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to watch and see. I mean, I'm definitely interested, but, uh, it kind of leads me to the other thing that I was going to ask you about here. Um, since we recorded the last episode, we have sports back again. Uh, the NBA is returned. Uh, the NHL has returned and obviously major league baseball with, a lot of complications has returned, uh, but you know they were sort of getting underway. Uh, you know with our last episode, but the reason why I bring it up is because I was going to ask you: Have you been watching any sports? And if so, like what have you been watching?
1: Yeah, I've been following the Penguins, and I've caught a little bit of uh, MLB here and there for curiosity. Uh, at this point, I'm, I'm interested in checking out some NBA action. I've just seen a tad bit of highlights. You that was good. I, yeah, I saw LeBron's. Uh, you know, he had a game winning. Uh, shot like in one of the, I watched the that first games that, yes. was, uh, that was Clippers cool.
0: and Lakers that was a re- like it was competitive it was it was a lot of fun so like I th- I think the NBA is doing very well so far and I, I like you said I watched the Penguins too but I haven't been able to keep up with the rest of the league to kind of see what's going on and see how that's working out but I mean I'll give both the NBA and the uh, NHL credit because they're both operating currently and uh, there are no positive tests or anything so the bubbles seem to be working.
1: Yeah, so far so good, and and it, it kind of runs parallel with with some of the coverage of pro wrestling that we did, where I was mentioning during certain pay per views and when the wrestling is pretty good, uh, especially with AEW, which I'm enjoying right now. It, it was kind of a similar aspect with with both um, the NHL and some of the MLB I watched, where you you kind of do get into it and subconsciously, you know, you let yourself go. That it's not like the normal packed house and loud crowd. You know, they they kind of. Help throw that off with the visual and um, sound aesthetics of it by putting like the um, the kind of uh, stand like the what would you call it like the how they put the, the cutouts in the stands and then they filter in some of the sound and stuff and it, and it just kind of entrances you to just kind of get into the flow of the game and you kind of forget about the fact that it's not the sports that we're used to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that pro sports obviously work a lot better than professional wrestling because wrestling it's really dependent on what the crowd's doing. Yeah, at I time. agree and completely. It, it, but, but with pro sports, I mean, it doesn't, you know, I mean, most of the time you're home watching them anyways, you're not at the game. So, you know, it's pretty much the same type of experience that you would have just watching a game. It so really is. yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, I've, I have been watching a lot of stuff lately too. Um, I, I actually have a baseball game going on in the background as we're recording this podcast. So I like it. It's still weird, obviously. Uh but you know, it's better than nothing. I will give it that. Yeah, it's I, good I to have absolutely right back. now. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely in, enjoying that uh for sure. So uh tons of wrestling stuff this week, man. Uh last week on AEW, we saw the debut of Zack Ryder uh in uh making the save uh in the match that Cody Rhodes had. Uh, he's obviously wrestling there under his real name, Matt Cardona. And um, Jesus Christ, man, he's like double the fucking size to be what the last I, time I we had, saw him.
1: I follow him on Twitter. So, like, I know like he's cut, but it just puts it into perspective when he, you compare him to being back on TV to the other guys in the AEW roster. And it's like, yeah, like, holy shit.
0: He's is fucking is Jack, massive.
1: Or mad, yep. I should say, at this point. But yeah. Uh, it's cool to have him. You know, it's gonna be a neat thing to see how he does in a different atmosphere because he's been such a long-term WWE wrestler. Um, as we said when he first was released, like his big thing was like he would say still here, and he had the still here t-shirts, and you know, now he had to say not there anymore or whatever it was, you know. Yeah, not not there. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how such a long-term WWE guy does in a different atmosphere on a different roster. But, I mean, he's always had skills, man. He's he's not my, uh, like, complete favorite wrestler by any stretch. But, I mean, I could see why he's, he's a solid professional wrestler. And let's see what he can do with some of the guys on the AEW roster.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the way I look at it, too. Because, I mean, the guy's a veteran, so it's like you've pretty much seen – what he can do by now, but it's going to be interesting to see him in there one-on-one with a lot of guys that they have on that roster. They got, you know, a lot of different type of talent that there's no way he would have been facing off with that, that style of wrestling, uh, in WWE. So, I mean, I, I'm at least interested in that. And, uh, they brought him out in something that's, you know, it's not just a random fucking thing on the card. So they, they clearly have some sort of plan for him. Uh, so, uh, I'm looking forward to that. You know that that's kind of cool. Um, but one of the other stories too that kind of feeds into this is, you know, since the WWE did all those layoffs, you've been hearing a lot of stuff about like, well, where's this guy going to end up? And we've seen guys end or end up all over the place. Uh, a lot of guys have jobs. Like I saw that uh, Heath Slater's in Impact now. Uh, like a week after he was, yeah. On a lot law. of
1: guys went to Impact.
0: Uh, yeah, Hawkins. Speaking of Ryder, Hawkins yep. ended up going to EC3. Impact
1: three. The boys. Yep.
0: Eric Young, another one that went back. Uh, But uh, the one, I guess, that most people would probably have been talking about uh, would have been Rusev. And uh, the reason why I bring that up is because he said that his days in the ring are over. He is now a streamer, I guess, online. He does streams on Twitch. uh, And people get paid a lot of money for doing those. um, So I don't blame him for doing that but it's kind of funny because i like the day after i read about this he was immediately banned although not permanently from twitch (laughs) yeah
1: what uh, do you get banned for, for? i didn't see that i saw the headline
0: well because he had lana on with him and apparently lana likes to hang out around the house in a bathing suit um and that's apparently against the rules especially that style of bathing suit she was wearing um like I said, it's not permanent, but I just thought it was funny to be like one day, like, I'm done wrestling. I'm only doing Twitch streams to the next day. Like, I'm banned on Twitch. Banned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's kind of unfortunate, too, man, because Rusev was really, really good. And I mean, I don't know if this is going to last. I don't yeah, even know he, how that's serious the thing, I Ed, take he, it.
1: he has a really goofy personality, and he fucks around a lot on Twitter and social media. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much credence you want to put into that, especially how recent the the release from the WWE is and stuff like that. So
0: have you seen pictures of him recently by chance?
1: Yeah. Just with the, uh, the article we pulled up, um, there's a bunch of them. He definitely looks a lot different, dude. He's
0: jacked. Yeah. Like and bald, ripped up. Like he's not like as bulky as he was, but he's definitely yeah, he way more some, cut.
1: Like, yeah, lost some weight, gained some muscle.
0: You could tell with some of these guys, like it, you know, with him and obviously how we were talking about, you know, Zach Ryder, obviously, uh dude, these guys, we know what they've been doing. Like you could tell who the gym rats have been through the quarantine, because certain yeah. guys apparently have been doing nothing but working out.
1: Just jacked to high hell. Yeah, because you know, I'm sure with the, the normal WWE travel, uh, we talk about that, how hard it is. I mean, the guys get into the gym, but the fatigue from traveling and things like that, now that they're that just, would be that quarantined and they're gym rats, like you said, I mean, I'm I'm sure they're hitting the weights like every every day, six, seven days a week.
0: Yeah, without a doubt, and it's obviously shown with some of these guys. But uh, there's another wrestling-related thing I wanted to bring up because I thought this was fascinating. And it was an article that I found last week. Uh, If you guys know, we talk about it here periodically on the show, but every Wednesday night, there's essentially a wrestling war going on, and it's AEW and NXT, which is, you know, apparent, you know, wrestling company to WWE. The Wednesday Night Wars. Um, yeah, and this is an article that's on Wrestling Inc. And it's basically a guy named Alfred Colonna, uh talked about, he's from Forbes magazine, talked the possibility of networks dropping WWE for AEW. Um, because AEW has been beating NXT in the ratings, uh, especially in the 18 to 49 demographic, which a lot of people are making noise about because that's apparently the big demographic for professional wrestling or almost anything, I guess, on TV, because this is the major consumer base uh, in the world and especially in the United States. So. Uh, I'm just going to read this quote from him. He said, I'll tell you what, anybody who's not taking AEW seriously is a threat to WWE. Whenever that question is posed, people look at that and they say, oh, they could never replace WWE. They've been around for 50 years. Yeah, brand recognition is one thing, but if you want to talk about here and now in the year 2020, AEW absolutely is a threat. And I'll tell you why it's because of the 18 to 49 demographic that AEW has absolutely overachieved. So, They were saying that they're, you know, like talking about a potential possibility. And now this is all hearsay. This isn't based on anything that's actually happening right now. But they're saying that there's possibilities that maybe AEW isn't thrilled with their current home. And maybe when WWE's contract comes up with USA, that maybe USA would want to look at AEW as a potential replacement. And. Uh, you know, I'm not giving total credence to that, but I also still think that it's a really interesting concept to think about in one way, shape or form.
1: Yeah. And he, the article also uh, what I th- thought was another interesting aspect brings up the current status of the WWE Network as well. Yeah. And, yep. um, you know, that that was a kind of interesting thing because me and you both have said, man, um, other than like the Wednesday Night Wars, like that's become my wrestling night. And other than that, Same. I don't watch too much wrestling. There's certain things just being a you know lifelong wrestling fan that I'll, I'll get sparked and I'll check, check a match out on the network or something. But I've really been lax on watching the network. And he kind of talks about that where it's basically at the lowest period in terms of how it's valued when it opened, it really didn't set the world on fire with the million subscribers they said they would have, but they were still doing the pay-per-views. And me and you have yep. talked about that thoroughly. Hey Ed, like for 10 bucks a month, just for a, what was a formerly a 60 some dollar pay per view to get, and you're paying 10 bucks a month and you still get those $60 pay per views, it, it made it worth it to us. Then, of course, having the entire history of the WWE and the documentaries and, and a lot of the other good stuff on there, it was, it was worth it. But now it's like anything, man, when you could just go from month to month of dropping it and picking it back up. This article alone kind of put it in my head, like maybe I got to kind of reconsider because, uh, you know, a deciding factor to me is always my son because he's still like, Like like watching the pay-per-views and he's even brought up like SummerSlam and stuff. So I'll probably keep it just because of that alone. But it did make me think like, man, if if I was hurting for money or something like that, it it would be something that's probably expendable for me at this point.
0: Yeah, I, I would think the same thing, especially because there is a free version of the WWE network that they are pushing themselves currently. And I haven't had the opportunity to check that out at all or to see what's actually on there. But from what my understanding was originally, that it was going to be the kind of thing where you can watch a lot, if not most of the old stuff, like, you know, the stuff that we are mainly interested in. Like if I could go back on the free network And watch like old primetime wrestlings or old you know ECW stuff or NWA stuff or you know like all the stuff that's in the in ring section basically on the network. If I could watch all that stuff for free, there's a very significant chance that I'm going to cancel my network at some point in the future because if I realize is an option exactly not not to mention we have other nefarious means to watch pay per views nowadays too so. I mean, it's outside of having it for like WrestleMania season, you know, like, okay, maybe I have it for three, four months out of the year, but there really isn't a whole lot of reason for me to have this right now. I'm just kind of watching the pay-per-views, whatever, but I could see there being a time period where I don't care anymore, and I'm like, whatever, I haven't watched the last two, I might as well just cancel it type thing.
1: Yeah. And again, you have that convenience of, of dropping it and then just picking it right back up. So it's like, you know, things do get, get back to normal, like say nine months, a year from now, whatever it may be. And the, the pay-per-views are back and, and things are getting good again, something like that, then
0: you can easily just resubscribe. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I could see this being the kind of thing for me where if this does kind of persist for another, like you said, like another year or two, and then things are totally fine afterwards. Um, Like most people at that point, I'm probably going to spend a lot of time doing things that aren't watching TV because that's pretty much what I've been doing this whole time. And it's probably how I'm going to be filling a lot of time between now and whenever things are remotely close to being normal ever again. So once I have the ability to go do things outside of my house, I'm probably going to take that opportunity while it's there. Yeah, for sure, man. So. I don't know. I mean, I just thought the article was really, really interesting because, you know, I mean, it's AEW is thriving right now. It's something that me and you talk about here on the show a lot, Um, but and especially due to the fact that and I guess it could take us kind of into the next topic here, um, into the kind of crappy stuff that the WWE is doing, which last night. I ended up watching a lot more Monday night raw than I normally do because I kind of sat down to watch the penguins playoff game and I was flicking back and forth throughout the night to see what was going on. And towards the middle of the show or whatever, I knew I had read something earlier in the day that said something about Shane McMahon. So I knew something was happening on raw and they kind of, whenever I was checking it periodically, they were showing some weird things and they were, they were alluding to something big was going to happen. So Shortly before the 10 o'clock hour, they show these clips of Shane McMahon in what looks like a warehouse, uh, and guys are kind of fighting behind him in a ring with no ropes, and it was really weird, and he kept saying how, like, Raw Underground is coming up next. It's coming up soon. It's, you know, throughout the night, they're building it up. And when they actually went to it, I don't even know how to really explain (laughs) this. It's a friend of mine, my buddy Steve, uh, who I was texting throughout the night, he watches Raw pretty regularly. He's a huge wrestling fan. Brought up a great point, but he's like, you know, I feel like this is the Def Jam fighting game. And then I saw somebody tweet it where they were like, man, I'm watching Raw here and I'm really in the mood to play Def Jam Vendetta for some reason, which is a video game that was out on probably like the original PlayStation. It was like a fighting game. But yeah, this is just not wrestling. I don't it's weird for me to even think the fact that this is what the company thinks fans would want to see is like fake shoot fights or something. I like it was just kind of a skit thing. So like you don't even exactly know what the fuck this was. And I also thought it was funny cuz like Shane would be talking when they would go to him with the guys fighting behind him. And isn't it kind of funny that they're telling you throughout the course of the night like how big of a deal this thing is, right? And there's fights going on, and they're not showing them to you. Instead, they're showing you whatever the fuck is going on on Raw. Like it was what the fuck dynamic. is this? like. What is this? Yeah.
1: <laughs> And I told you there was a couple of things, um, you know, my initial takes on it were, you know, off the bat, I was telling you my, my one buddy missed it that I talked to wrestling with. And I was talking to him in the morning and asked him if he caught it. And just when I explained to him what WWE Underground was, he like thought I was fucking with him and just couldn't grasp it. And I was like, yeah, it's that it's that goofy. And um, I, I said to him, it's it's like re- f- fake real fights is what it is. Yeah. Like, like you said, they're trying to do these work shoots and it just comes off as weird and um you know circling back to rusev um because he's been making a lot of twitter comments about like oh i saw this he he said we want to build new talent shane is back sums it up you know and that's that's the wwe's mo man they they uh they just do just goofy shit they don't appropriately build guys anymore or push younger guys i mean it's so hard to get over into WWE. I mean, not to go on a side tangent of, of what Daniel Bryan had to go through just to, to finally find his place when he was obviously over with millions of people. But but yeah, this thing's just really convoluted. Um, they they made it even worse by, like you said, skipping around. Like, it just gave Ross such a weird – it's just so weird. And then you have, like, Dominic Mysterio now, like, being one of the main dudes, which it's cool, I guess, in a way to see, like – you know, again, just talking about like new talent, but, and, and like, he's, he's not done that bad, but it's just, <laughs> raw was just like, I, I guess maybe too. Hey, had since I haven't watched it in a while, like I haven't sat down and watched raw Ra in weeks and I did the same thing you did last night, you know, watching the penguin game and flipping onto it and then finishing it today. So it was the first one I watched in a while, but man, it just, is so goddamn weird. I mean, it was weird the last time I saw it, but now it's on new levels. And uh, it's it's funny too. Speaking of that, how freaking huge Dominic is for being yeah, raised right Son. Like that kid's a yeah, giant. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah,
0: he's. I thought the same thing. And he's. And the funny thing is too is like they did. This is probably like the first time that he did anything that was actually like wrestling. Yeah. And it was herky jerky, and he's green. And I'm not saying the kid ain't good. Like he clearly has yeah. some sort of talent he has potential. But yeah, but. He's not Ray.
1: He's not there yet. (laughs) Like,
0: I mean, well, dude, it's like me and you have talked about this, just pertaining to other stuff, where it's like, uh, people will say, like, some kid wants to play basketball, right? And he's trying to do anything he can, obviously, to be a professional basketball player. Okay, but in the process of things, like he's thinking of everything, like, well, I didn't do that as good as Michael Jordan did. I didn't do this as good as Michael Jordan did. I'm not doing that as good as my... It's like you're kind of fucking up with that type of approach because you're like... You could be a really, really... You could be a great pro, a potential Hall of Fame basketball player and still be nowhere near the kind of player that Michael Jordan was, okay? And that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Like, Dominic might end up being a really solid professional wrestler, maybe a really good one, maybe a dude who someday is considered a Hall of Famer. He's a damn good wrestler. He's been here for 15 years, but he ain't going to be Ray. Ray's like one, like one in a handful of guys, like, in our generation, where, that like, you could think of, like, okay, Hogan, because he was such a big deal. Flair, because he's an anomaly. Austin, because he was a big deal. Rock, because he's an anomaly. Shawn Michaels, because he's like an in-ring, like there's very few people on that level. Bret Hart's kind of like that. Same lane that, that Michaels is in. And those two guys made it possible for small guys to wrestle in the United States. And then there's a dude like Sabu, who even it was a short period of time, but people don't realize like in 95-ish how big of a deal that guy was to wrestling. I don't mean to fans. I mean, he was changing the way a lot of people wrestled because they saw what he did. Um, you know, there's a handful of other guys that are like that in the history of the business, and Ray is one of them. Yeah, because when you Like, when you saw Ray for the first time, As a wrestling fan, you kind of like perked up and you go, wait a minute, I've never seen anyone like this. Like, I've seen dudes do stuff kind of like this and similar to that, but like no one is this. Yeah, he took it to the next level, you know. He did. So it's like, but that's a lot for, you know, I don't know what they're expecting out of the kid. Oh, nobody could. Yeah.
1: I mean, he's so unique. That's the thing. It's not even about his being good as him in the ring or anything like that. Like, he's so unique. The timing of when he came up again, like you said, just to your point with the trailblazing aspect and stuff. I mean, there's no chance anybody could compete with that. And, and this has happened with guys in the past. You know, there's been a lot of next generation guys and Randy Orton's more of an anomaly than the latter where it's, yep. it's you know, look at uh, David Flair and guys like yep. that, that it's just too big of shoes
0: to fill. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen them like, dude, off the top of my head, uh, guys who had kids in wrestling that were never wases. I'm talking uh, Ricky Steamboat's son, was signed and just quit. Like, I don't, and I heard he was very good. He just didn't want to do it anymore. Um If, uh, like, uh what's his name? Uh, Terry Gordy's son was in WWE for a while and just didn't, it didn't work out. They didn't know what to do with him. He was small. He wasn't like Terry Gordy. David Flair's a great example. Um You know, like, there's a lot of dudes who had kids that just, they weren't made for it. Orton is the model example i guess the rock is another one yep uh, of guys who you know like brett hart is another one owen hart's another one like those are the small handful of success stories that these like a dominic is trying to be on that level and again that's kind of like the michael jordan thing because you're trying to be like brett hart or even randy orton or guys that have had 20-year careers, 20-plus-year careers. That's an anomaly in and in, in of itself, let alone a second-generation guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, he's uh, getting pushed right now. Um, they announced that he's wrestling Seth Rollins at SummerSlam in his first match. So, you know, I saw a, a meme or a jiff or whatever you want to, however you want to put it of Dominic uh during the the latter match between Ray and Eddie in 2005. And they were saying, you know, Dominic was in the audience in 2005, 15 years later, he's in a match, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's a cool story too, you know, and and adds something to how kind of bland and goofy the pandemic WWE has been. So I'll give it that. But yeah, to your point, I mean, he's not going to be filling Ray's shoes anytime soon, but it is going to be pretty interesting to see what happens. And if he does become like a full blown WWE wrestler and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm curious to see where it goes.
0: Absolutely. So uh, we are going to take a quick commercial break, but the wrestling doesn't stop here. We're going to do the second week of the uh, 30-Day Wrestling Challenge. So stay tuned for that, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast.
1: Hey, everyone. This is The Jay with the What's Real Podcast, here to talk about the feature film Deference from Churchill Pictures in association with Cut & Run Studios. Two best friends get in deep with the head of Pittsburgh's most dangerous crime operation and are forced to choose between their friendship and their lives. Deference has not been rated by the MPAA, but would be considered rated R. The film contains graphic violence, nudity, sexual situations, vulgar language throughout, and alcohol drug use. Deference is streaming now on Amazon Prime, or you can rent or buy Deference today on Vimeo.com or through ChurchillPictures.com. Also, Churchill Pictures' first feature film will soon be available to own in a hard copy format. The film will be available on a USB flash drive, preserving its best quality in exclusive collector's edition packaging. To pre-order Deference, simply email us at LLC at gmail.com to reserve your copy today. Only $9.99 plus shipping. Check it out today. Deference. When tradition fades, order preserves respect. Deference. On Amazon Prime churchillpictures.com or vimeo.com hey everyone this is the j with the what's real podcast here to talk about the unsung movie from churchill pictures in association with cut and run studios the unsung is now available to own churchill pictures is proud to announce our distribution partnership with bayview entertainment the first step of this process is that the film is now available to own digitally exclusively on vimeo.com and through churchillpictures.com. Rent the film today, streaming for $1.99 and also available to own the stream for $15. Please help share and spread the word. Thanks as always for the support. Hard copy versions of the film are in development. Stay tuned for updates. The Unsung, Hope Lives in the Shadows. Rent or buy The Unsung today on vimeo.com or through churchillpictures.com.
0: And we're back here on the show. And as I said, guys, the wrestling didn't stop there in the opening segment. We are on to week two of the 30-day wrestling challenge, days eight through 14. Um, I thought this was pretty interesting, man. And it's it's kind of challenging, too, because they're making you put, like, a stamp on it. I was going to say it racks
1: your brain. Yeah, like I said, it, I'm it, not the, the best with favorites. So this is really yeah.
0: tough for the J. <laughs> and I'm not either. So a lot of these I'm just kind of like, okay, you got to make you got to pull the trigger on something here. So that's what you got to go with. So let's get into it. As I said, we're doing the second week. We're getting started on day 8. So the J. Day 8. What is your favorite superstar attire?
1: See, now this is kind of if you overthink, you can look at it in a couple ways and that's as always what my goofy mind does. So, what I mean by that is, where it says favorite superstar attire, does that mean the superstar's career attire, or is there a specific one outfit?
0: That's what I I kind of thought of it the same way, um, like you know. So, so I guess you could do it for both so if you want, let's, whatever let's, makes I'll it be, easier I'll, for you.
1: I'll, yeah, because I did not want to break the rules, but I mean it works for this. I'll, I'll just go how I initially put it together. So. I went with my man, I said uh, in the first uh, week of the 30 day challenge, my favorite wrestler of all time, Shawn Michaels. So I went with HBK um, because he had that classic gear um, where he could do the different colorways and color schemes, almost like our sneaker talk all the time, you know? Yep. yep. And I put SummerSlam 95, which was the ladder match with Rey Mysterio, which uh, won Hey Al. Or Razor Ramon was yeah, Razor Ramon, I'm sorry, was in attendance. The latter yeah. match rematch from WrestleMania 10. He came out in kind of our school colors. They were all turquoise with yep. black. And then he had the white boots. Ridiculous. WrestleMania 12, the all white and gold with the, the black uh dirt bike boots that he would do. And then okay. the random one is the ones that he wore in that that random match for the IC title against Jeff Jarrett
0: where they oh, Michael with the
1: bearded Michaels with the gold, like yellow. <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, that I thought was those dope. were sick. So, so those were, I went with my favorite wrestler and a few of my favorite attires with him for the favorite superstar
0: attire. And it's funny because I kind of cheated on this one. So as you said, like you didn't really know how to take the, the question. So if I'm going like who, what superstar had like my favorite attire through his career, it's yeah. going to be the macho man because yeah, that, that's, he was uh, that's like what he's known for. Yep. Um, but, but like you said, it's a specific attire, like, you know what I mean? Like which one, and I cheated on this one and you know where I'm going with this, the WrestleMania four tournament where he had four matches change. and changed yeah. every time. Like that <laughs> was, call. that shit blew my mind. At that was unprecedented the watching time. That. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It was like every time he had like a different outfit and his outfits were ridiculously awesome anyway so one night where he had four different ones like that's like the antithesis of what this question means to me
1: yeah and that's a great call and notice with with me choosing michaels i went with his specific in ring attire not the um you know the village people <laughs> yeah <laughs> like the <laughs> like goofy chains and <laughs> Because, like, Triple H always busted his balls about that, you know.
0: Dude, that reminds me, bringing up the chains and shit. You remember the one, I think it was Mania, where he did, like, his pose on the rampway and the chains got caught in the metal on the rampway (laughs) and he was, like, stuck. He couldn't get out, like... Like he played it off good, but it was like he's fucking stuck to the steel grating with his chains. The
1: all we always talked about that me, you, and Squid being longtime wrestling fans. The weird shit that happens, and like how they're able to play everything off. Remember the one oh. time he was coming down, and the goofs like were reaching for him, and the guardrail the fell barricade.
0: Over? <laughs> yeah, it's an in your house too. I forget on which one on. it is, but yet yeah, yeah. there. Uh, we even seen one of those. Yeah. And Michaels was the catalyst in that one.
1: Yeah, we gotta tell save effort story time.
0: Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. And that's a
1: long uh, one. We gotta tell that appropriately.
0: Yeah, it, it'll take some time to flesh that one out. So uh moving right along here, day nine. Favorite entrance.
1: Dude, think how big of a part of professional wrestling entrances
0: are and how hard it, it's is. It's literally one of the most important things. Yeah. So
1: again, I, I just went with my gut. I just kind of didn't dwell on it too long. There was a lot up there. There was a lot I was going to pick, but I'm just going for personal favorite stuff. I'm trying to stick to that. It's helping me just make answers. I went with um, RVD and ECW to um, to walk. Uh, yeah,
0: that's 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 a good. Because I always,
1: I, I've looked at it like this. Hey, Ed. Like I, I would like run run into the room. If I like thought I was going to miss RVD's entrance in ECW, you know. Yeah, no, I I'd I get wanted it. to see it every. T- I could watch it a million times just because. I mean, I love Pantera, I love the sound, song "Walk" and just RVD coming down to it, high as shit,
0: bloodshot eyes. It, <laughs> it's funny because, like you said about the entrance being such a big, important thing in wrestling, right? So, like, naturally, you think, like, what are the biggest entrances? And it's, like, guys like Undertaker because of the production value and stuff yeah, like that. So I that's that. Th- that's an easy way to go. Obviously, I was trying to think of, like, when I was a kid, like, which ones were, like, poignant to me. And obviously, one of the first ones that come to mind was The Ultimate Warrior. You know what I'm saying? That's a great call. So yeah. And then you bringing up RVD also is a great point, too, because it kind of reminds you of, like, watching it on TV was okay, But like when you were there, it was amazing. And that leads me to two of them. And I'm going to pick one. Uh, This isn't the one that I picked, but another one of those ones that is a big deal. Like when you're there in person is when New Jack would come out. Because they played his music throughout his whole match. So it was like a big deal. Uh, And along those lines, it led me to the one that I'm picking. Because this was something that I can say is one-of-a-kind type thing especially with the particular audience that that it was you know portrayed in front of and i'm going with the same company that you did in ecw and i'm going with the sandman because hearing an entire crowd singing enter sandman as a dude's walking through the crowd drinking beer yeah it gives you goosebumps it's wild. Like that was a really a one of one kind of thing. And it's like, I can't even, there's nothing in pro wrestling currently that's even really like that. So that's pretty special. And it was funny because it was done in one of the most low rent wrestling companies of all time in ECW, but it just shows you sometimes that it's not always about the production value. It's just about how you pull the stuff off that makes it work.
1: Yep. Exactly. That's a great call. I love that entrance.
0: Day 10. Now this one is fun. This is, this might be one of the most fun entries in this whole 30 day challenge. Favorite entrance music. Such, such a tough one, man. There's so many of them.
1: There's so many. I mean, there's, there's no wrong answers here. And um, that's why this is a blast, you know, me and you doing this. Um, So uh, as I said, I won't, repeat myself you know kind of same logic i've been using i just thought about when i hear it i would just picture myself coming down to it it just pumped me up um i went with an original song you know i stayed away from ecw obviously and like re- real songs with entrances and things like that and same. I, I went with uh dx
0: oh okay that's a good one it's classic you know what i dude, mean dude? remember it's-
1: we would be at jets which was a local nightclub in pittsburgh oh jesus christ they would play the dx music like yes as part of the dj and we would go
0: fucking crazy that that shit was hilarious that they did that now i think about it
1: i remember like looking at it because we didn't expect it at all we're like dude they're playing the dx theme
0: like you yeah because you notice it especially back then like i don't think people were and it's it here's time for my old man rant of the week but like kids now and younger people and even wrestling fans now got it easy man because they can be like just enthralled with this shit all the time. It wasn't like that when we were young. So like whenever something happened, it would be like mind-blowing. So like you're at a club like not thinking anything of it and then all of a sudden you're like is that the fucking DX music? And then it like kicks in and you're like that is the fucking DX music. <laughs> yeah. Like what the fuck is happening? Why is and then this that became...
1: It became commonplace. They, they play um, wrestling themes at NFL games now and NHL mm-hmm. teams and all that. So,
0: Which is really – how about this for weird? Because that reminds me of it. So I'm watching the Penguin playoff game last night, and they're like on a – you know, like there's they're waiting for a penalty or something, some music's playing. They're playing the fucking – finn Balor demon theme song yeah, there you, know? you go yeah i'm like what the hell like what no one would even know what that even is in a hockey game i remember I catching
1: imagine. some random truck commercial and it was like jeff hardy's theme music
0: oh that would get played that one and and for some and i don't know why that one and the uh the hardcore holly theme music would be yeah. used for shit <laughs> yeah hilarious like in the And, of course, one of my favorites that would get used like that. It's it's my favorite one that gets used for random shit. And I was dying. This was years ago when I'm watching SportsCenter one night. And they're like, you know, like, the, the Red Sox played the Tigers today. What a great game we had. Let's go to the highlights. And all of a sudden, they're playing Lex Luger's WCW theme music. And great I can't highlights. even watch... I can't even watch the highlights because I'm cry laughing.
1: Yeah, like because i am,
0: I imagine him just doing the as we used to always make fun of it, the, yeah, the pose. pose, like immediately yeah. coming out, which is hilarious. <laughs> uh, That's great. So my choice for this one, I went. I wanted to go a little weirder for this one. I wasn't going to do any ECW stuff or regular music, and I wasn't going to go through, like, I could have easily picked Real American because I loved that shit when I was a kid. But I'm just talking about me today. Like, what's a theme song that, like, I fucking just love? And, of course, because it's me, I couldn't take this seriously. I had to pick a theme song that I think it's amazing but it's also one of the funniest theme songs I've ever heard. And it's for one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. And it's the WCW theme music of ravishing Rick rude.
1: That's a great call
0: with the chick.
1: And
0: it's dude. And I found this, I'm going to have to look this up and I'll post it on the Twitter if I can find it. But somebody on Twitter a while ago was like, this song doesn't deserve this woman. And it was somebody had footage of the woman recording it. Like the black woman that see, yeah, sings like really the good. song. And she, yeah, and it's like, yeah, it's like this dumbass fucking song. And this woman's like putting full ass effort into Like she's killing it. Oh, no, had some weird ones, man. But, dude, that's I, – and I swear to God, the, the Rick Rude WWF one, like the stripper theme song, that's a classic. Yeah. yeah. But this is so much better to me for, for a whole multitude of stupid wrestling reasons. But I've always loved it. I still love it to this day. It's a fucking great theme song. So I wanted to go a little outside the box on that one because, I mean, I could kind of just be an asshole and pick Macho Man for a bunch of these, too. Um, but I wanted to go a little bit different for that one. Yeah, it's a good call. This one is probably the hardest one oh, on the entire long. thing. So, day eleven, your favorite match of all time?
1: Um, it's what we we've said, hey Ed. It's the it's a mood thing, you know. Um, for for c- certain matches, like if I'm in a different mood, I want a different match and things like that. I mean, there's the all time classics, of course. So that's where you have to go with this.
0: And or I, or yeah. do you do the cop out and just Which pick be, the best match that you ever saw in person because you're like, well, it's my favorite match because I saw it in person? Yeah.
1: I just went with the one kind of the line of thinking, you know, again, to help kind of cut down my choices and, and make the choice. I kind of went along the lines of who, what, what number one match to me would I show a non wrestling fan or even say somebody that, like despises pro wrestling okay. to try to convert them to try to say like, this is why I love this shit. Yep. And so I went with HBK versus taker WrestleMania 25.
0: I knew you were going to pick that match. I don't know yeah, why, I mean, it's but probably I the ma- it's probably the match,
1: match I've watched most ever. I, I watch it like every few months,
0: basically
1: here and there. I no, it's understandable.
0: It. It's fucking great. I mean, I, yeah. I, I ain't going to shit on that choice. Um, This one is so hard for me because I've, I have different favorites for different reasons. And, you know, like I could, like I could go with the Japanese stuff because it's, it's better. It's It's fucking better. It's yeah. I mean, there, there's a whole myriad of stuff. Like, I mean, it's really hard for me to not pick one of the steamboat flare matches. You know what I mean? Because they're all great. So, uh, But the match that I went with, I went with kind of a... uh, I was thinking I would show somebody a WWE match. I kind of was thinking the same way you were. Like, I'm going to show somebody a match and show them why I love this. So I'm going to pick a WWE match because I just think it's more accessible than showing somebody like a really old NWA match or a Japanese match where they're not going to get anything from the commentary or anything. So I went with what I think is the greatest WrestleMania match of all time. And I know people would say that about the match you picked, but I would argue with them about this one. And it's from WrestleMania 13 and it's the, I quit match or the submission match. I should say between Bret Hart and stone cold, Steve Austin. Yeah. That match is incredible.
1: Yeah. It changed the whole dynamic of where the WWF at the time was headed and creating stone cold is, is like the next, you know, as big as Hogan and comparable right with the rock at the time. So, um, so, but yeah,
0: what a match, you know, don't hold us to these. I don't know if this would be our answer for this next week. It's just kind of like what we picked for this one. Um, We kind of had, and and I didn't want to do a cop out and be like, I couldn't pick one. So there I, I put it down to one for you. So I
1: went the same route
0: day, 12 favorite pay-per-view or event of all time. This one was easy for me.
1: All right. So I I just picked one, but can I do a a honorable mention? Sure. Just for the talk of it, because it's a personal experience with us and our our buddies we always reference. So I just went with, you know, again, line of thinking on this. Uh, I'm like, uh, favorite pay-per-view or event. I'm going to go with the biggest event. I'm going to go with. Not even necessarily my favorite one. I mean, it's up there, but just the most well-balanced because we've talked before, especially with wrestling pay-per-views. For myself, I love the ones that like every segment brings something different to the overall card. Yep. And it's just like every part of it is good. And that's, in my opinion, the most balanced, best overall WrestleMania I chose for my favorite pay-per-view. And that would be WrestleMania 17 I picked.
0: Okay. Okay. That's a really good and show.
1: My honorable mention, like I, I was saying, like with the personal thing was ECW's first pay-per-view, barely legal. Oh because yeah. We have the personal story of doing everything we could in real life to yep. try to watch that because as high school kids, we didn't have a lot of options. Um, our it wasn't on our cable provider. Did, didn't get it. And um, a, a girlfriend of ours, Uh, We were able to talk into it. And it was like, we had a lot of girlfriends that hung out with us. And this was a girl we were just friends with, but we didn't even hang out with all like that. And she was cool with us coming over. So we kind of just crashed her parents' house. Like, I think her parents were even confused. Like, why are all these dudes coming over to watch wrestling with Lisa? You know? (laughs) But, but yeah, I mean, that was like the prime of ECW. We couldn't believe they were going to have a pay-per-view. So yep. that always holds a special place in my heart. So I just had to mention that on the pod as a
0: honorable yeah, that, mention here. That's, that would be my honorable mention, too, because I can't think of a time when I wasn't a kid um, where I that was like the most rewarding wrestling experience I ever had.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we went nuts.
0: Like it was the build. We couldn't believe
1: everything. we were seeing it.
0: Yeah, it was, it was really like, it was really something that we felt like was impossible at the time and just yeah. watching it happen was amazing and no wrestling show probably since then. There and it's how about this for weird? There's only maybe one show since then that gave me that same type of vibe and it's weird as hell what it is. It's it's a coincidence but it's weird. And it's the first one night stand.
1: Yeah. That's up there too, man. I watched the, the the two one night stands a lot too in my wheelhouse,
0: and it's really weird too because those two pay per views happened a considerable amount of time away from each other, and I watched them both with you. <laughs> How yeah. weird is that? Of course. Uh, uh, but my choice for this one, and it's not it, it, this one was easy. It's the most important wrestling show in the history of the business, in my opinion. And it was a huge event for me in my life. And it was it was the first time that I had that feeling that you were just talking about, like, with Barely Legal and stuff. And it was WrestleMania three. That was a big deal in my household. Like, yeah. my parents, who didn't give a fuck, cared. Like, everybody was talking about that. It was such a big deal. Hogan, Andre, and one of the greatest matches in the history of the business itself with Macho Man, and Ricky the Dragon steamboat for the Intercontinental. So I
1: mentioned in week one that was my first ever memory of wrestling because it was such a big pop culture event that my parents that didn't even ever like wrestling. That's the only time I even remember them without me, of course, putting on wrestling. You know, it was WrestleMania three. That's how big of an event that was.
0: Yeah, it's it was a huge deal. I, I can't even begin to explain it to people because, like nowadays, like I said, there's so much stuff that you can immerse yourself in the weight for that show was excruciating. I still remember how long it felt to build up to that was. So yeah. it was, it was a huge deal for me and it was a huge deal for the business itself. So that's why I picked it as my favorite pay-per-view of or event of all time. Moving along here to day 13, what's your favorite finisher?
1: Another tough one, another similar way of thinking, just, Dwindle it down to the classics, personal favorites. And I haven't got them on here yet because I know you picked him as favorite superstar of all time. And you just had him as the the attire. Okay. I'm going on my Macho Man with the Macho Man Flying Elbow Drop.
0: See, that's a good choice. I like that one a lot. And I kind of went the same way. Um, I didn't want to pick a move that like just anybody could do or a move that anybody would like look the same doing that's why I get like I thought that's a good choice because so many people did elbow drops but very few if any ever did them like macho man and that's why I picked what I did with this one I went with Eddie Guerrero's frog splash because Ooh, nice. it's it's a great finish Looks great, and nobody ever did the Frog Splash like Eddie did it. People try and do it like him, but he was like the guy who invented the mechanics of doing that. And he didn't invent the move either, but to me, he just perfected it. And I love that move, and I love Eddie Guerrero, so I wanted to get him on the list somewhere. So I just kind of boiled it down and figured that was a good choice to pick it for that. So That's great, yeah. And the last one we're doing this week, Day 14, your favorite promo?
1: Yeah, this this was tough. Um, I was gonna stick to the the classics, but I kind of did what what you had alluded to earlier, hey Ed, where you just wanted to be a little different on it instead of picking like you know one of Flair's classics or Dusty's. Which obviously I wouldn't wouldn't blame you. I mean, I was gonna go that route, but you know, and, and to kind of mix my my list too, get different guys that I that I love, you know, all time guys on here. Yep, I went with The Rocks hell in a cell promo when he faced uh, six other dudes and like made fun of them all in his promo in different ways. Oh
0: yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I'm not familiar with it until you said that, but now, yeah, now I know the one you're talking about.
1: Yeah. He like rants about like angle and then goes in the stone cold and like rolls his eyes back, like taker. And you know, know, it's, it's, it's amazing. It just shows the rocks diversity.
0: So like, you know how, like whenever you cut a promo and you're really not supposed to make fun of the dudes that you're, do wrestling like that's a, well, a no-no yeah, you, you,
1: co- you at least you at least come back around you know yeah, if you, you make fun you know to say like you know oh but i, I know he's gonna be tough
0: yes but he's exactly but he's a piece of shit <laughs> but yeah. did you ever notice that like the rock is the only dude maybe ever that can just run fuckers yeah, down he gets, he gets away with it yeah. and it and it's well not just because he gets away with it but it doesn't well, it works like, for him yeah he's the one dude that where it like he shits on everyone So it's not like, oh, this dude sucks. The Rock made him look like an idiot. Like, perfect example. The first run of DX. Remember how we were talking about them last week? Kind of like as far as factions go and how good they were. The one detriment of that group, though, is they shit all over everyone that they wrestle. And they made them all look like fucking idiots. And it got them over... But it fucking destroyed everyone they wrestled. It, like, almost ruined them after the match that, like, if the person didn't beat them, they were done. They were dead in the water. But that didn't happen with The Rock. It was, like, a good thing to get run. It got you over to get run down by The Rock, which is a totally different vibe. And it's weird because The Rock is the only dude I can think of off the top of my head that can do that to someone.
1: Yeah, it started the whole run with Jericho coming over from WCW with the um yeah, the, the
0: promo they did and he cuts him off. It doesn't and, matter. And dude, yeah, he shits is. all over Jericho in that and it worked.
1: Yeah, cuz Jericho's reactions and Yeah, it yeah, it lets, right, lets a unique.
0: it lets a good performer be a good performer where like the DX side of it just made you look like an idiot. Like you look like a a fucking goober. Yep. And it wasn't like that with The Rock because he did that shit to everyone. So it wasn't like, man, The Rock's really getting on Austin's ass here because that's what he did to everyone. But with DX, like, they would really make Slaughter look like a moron, like a fucking goof. And I know he was the commissioner, but fuck. Like, that's the one guy that's supposed to be – like, unless you're going to kick his ass, you probably shouldn't make fun of him. It just period. But The Rock didn't bother him. So – um, for me on this one, I don't know. I was kind of thinking there's two of them, okay? One, I'll do the, the honorable mention, and then I'll pick the one that I picked. So, the honorable mention is one that I watched a couple weeks ago, and I was reminded of it. And it's so good. And I the reason why it's an honorable mention is because this guy has a ton of great promos, and no one even talks about this one or the era that it's in for good reason. So, and, and I don't even know if you know what this is. So, In 94, there was a match on Raw one week that it was Yokozuna and Macho Man for the belt. And Yokozuna would go on to win that match because Crush interfered. So they would eventually set up for Macho Man Crush at WrestleMania. So they did this promo backstage where Vince McMahon is interviewing Macho Man. And it is one of the best promos I've ever seen. He's subdued, so he ain't like, oh yeah, dig it and the whole thing. He's just talking, but his point is like, he's saying that like he had the world championship won and he's like, and I fought hard for that. And I had Yokozuna beat and crush interfered and he's like, and I'm, pissed because i want one of my goals in my career was to be the three-time champion and i was this close and i'm not stupid i know how long it takes for me to build back up and get another championship shot like that i don't know if i have that left in my career but what i have left in my career is a match with crush at wrestlemania and he's like dude like dead serious and he's like you know like i'm gonna hurt him i'm gonna like it's serious and it's it's crazy To see that style of promo from Macho Man. And I love that fucking promo. It's from a random raw in 1994. And it is something else to see. Because they weren't even really doing promos and stuff like that in the WWF at the time. So that one really rings a bell with me.
1: No, I'm sure I saw it, but I don't recall it. So I'll revisit that. So that's a good call. And the one that I
0: pick is, and I want to say it was a matchup between Buddy Rose and Roddy Piper. And Roddy Piper is talking, and he's saying, like, you know, like, I'm going to beat you up, blah, 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 like, whatever, whatever. And he does this thing where he says, like, you know, like, you're in for a fight. And he's like, and we didn't even saddle up our ponies. That's, like, the thing that he says in it. But the reason why it's so good is because. He si- he says that part first. He's like, you know, you got to do all this stuff. and We're going to fight the fight. And we're going to saddle up our ponies. And then what I'm going to do to you is this. And then he breaks a bottle over his forehead and he just starts bleeding everywhere.
1: <laughs>
0: and he just looks into the camera and he's like, and don't forget, Playboy, Buddy Rose. This is just the beginning. We ain't even saddle up our ponies yet and just walks away. And it's one of the best fucking promos I've ever seen. It's super old. He legit breaks a bottle over his own head. And it's like one of them promos where, like, you know, like wrestlers are nuts. Like we get it. You know what I mean? Like wrestling fans get that degree about wrestlers. But it's like when they do that one moment and it's like an old school promo too. this is pre WWF where he breaks a button. You see the blood. It's not, there's nothing fake about it. He just broke a bottle over his head and he's bleeding everywhere. (laughs) And he's no selling the fuck out of it while he's still cutting a promo. Like that's That's the shit that as a wrestling fan would really sell to you. Like these dudes ain't fucking around. Yeah. (laughs) Like,
1: well, Hey, Hey, if you're not going to have, um, Flair or dusty in the promos, the rock Piper and even macho. You go with Piper. Yeah, I agree. Definitely
0: good to get Piper on there. Good call. But, yeah, man, another fun week of the 30-Day Wrestling Challenge. We're going to pick up next week with day 15. Um, It's only going to get harder from here, guys. So if you've been enjoying this, uh, we got a lot more favorites and stuff, including Most Shocking Moment, Why You Like Wrestling. like There's a ton of these that are really cool, so we're looking forward to doing the rest of these. Uh, coming up next week so don't forget to join us for that Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break and when we come back guys we are going to get into our review of part one of in search of darkness the uh, documentary of the most iconic horror films of the 1980s so stay tuned guys we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast
1: hey everyone this is the jay with the what's real podcast for church hill pictures Churchill Pictures was founded by two childhood friends that grew up in Churchill Borough, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The founders began working on their first feature film in 2007, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival in 2012. View it today from the link on churchillpictures.com. Through the years, Churchill Pictures have put together a number of short films and comedy sketches, as well as documentaries, all of which can be viewed on the website. In 2016, the co-owners embarked on another feature film project, The Unsung, a production that united a group of talented filmmakers who delivered the project on time and under budget. Currently available digitally through a direct link at churchillpictures.com, The Unsung continues to help move Churchill Pictures forward in 2020 as pre-production begins for the next feature film project, a four-part documentary story of a territory wrestling league in the mid-1980s entitled The Marks. Check us out at ChurchillPictures.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities.
0: Hi, I'm Jackie, wanna play? So this is the eighties. So there's a free for all for concepts. When your guard is down, bam. Very impressive gore. I just think they're hilarious. It's showtime. And we're back here on the show. And it is time to get into the movie segment this week. Uh, There is a really interesting documentary that uh, just debuted on Shudder. And it's been available for a while on DVD and Blu-ray. And me and you, the J, actually talked about this recently, how expensive it was on the secondary market. It's called In Search of Darkness. Uh, It's from 2019. And this is an expansive documentary. We're talking almost four hours and it covers the entire documentary. Or it covers the entire documentary. It covers the entire decade of the nineteen eighties. And it's it says that it's uh look covering like the most iconic horror. And that's not exactly the case here either. So what you get when
1: you do something like this, you're gonna miss some stuff.
0: Naturally, of course. And I there are a few things in this that I have a severely rough opinion of, but um, it's an overall documentary here. And we're going to talk about the first half. So they start out in 1980 and you see a lot of people here, including people that worked on the movie um, movies. I should say, you see a lot of actors and directors and people like that. Uh, Also, you see some writers and some other outsiders of horror uh, that give their opinion. So there's a lot of talking head stuff in this. And, Here's the thing. This is in a weird territory because I find it that they're spending a lot of time in this talking about movies that have been talked about to death and then the movies that were kind of like random choices and kind of on the more offbeaten path. It's like they it's like a personal preference thing. Like there wasn't like any yet. There was no rhyme or reason to why they were picking the movies. I mean, I understand why they're talking about Friday the 13th, for example. And I'm bringing that up because they start in 1980. OK, but then they really get into some questionable choices throughout here. And it's like, why? Like, what, what was the choice to talk about this one? And it has to be the director or somebody, because it's not movies that are certainly not iconic movies. Um, so you were dealing with that in this throughout, which I think takes away a little bit of what it could have been, because they're either spending their time barely talking about a weird, randomly chosen movie, or they're talking about Friday the 13th, which at this point they've made full out documentaries about Friday the 13th. So... It's kind of more of a trip down memory lane than anything.
1: That's that's how I looked at it. I, I just kind of like being in the world yeah. of 80s horror anyway. So for four plus hours or whatever it was, um, this thing I have pulled up says a runtime of nearly four and a half. Uh, I, it went pretty damn fast. I mean, I, I watched it kind of in parts uh, over the weekend, mm-hmm. but still like. I was just I was loving just the atmosphere of it. Yeah. But to your point, as far as like the actual film, I don't think it was as serious or as groundbreaking as it possibly could be, you know, with with the material of covering 80s horror.
0: Yeah, I think they could have just kind of put it under the guise of 80s horror movies like a celebration. And it would have been fine.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like um, more popcorny than than yes. it's seeming like it might be like a really hardcore kind of one. And I mean, like you mentioned, he, he got some amazing people to be on it, which we'll go through. Uh, so that obviously helped, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, just the overall initial take, um, it was more popcorny of a documentary for us kind of horror heads and especially like how dear to the heart we hold eighties horror, but I still just love being in that world. and, And we'll get into it, but it it pumped me up to to watch some shit I haven't seen in a bit and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. And uh, just to give you an idea, here's the list of people we're talking about. Uh, Director John Carpenter, uh, Doug Bradley, Pinhead himself, Jeffrey Combs from Reanimator. Barbara Crampton from Reanimator. Cassandra Peterson, better known as Elvira. Nick Castle, the original uh, Michael Myers. Keith David from None Other Than The Thing. Kane Hodder. Jason Voorhees himself. Bill Mosley, horror veteran. Director Joe Dante. Actress Kelly Maroney. Dante in this. uh, Katie Featherston from uh, Paranormal Activity. Carolyn Williams, the horror actress. uh, Horror scribe Tom Holland. Greg Nicotero, the special effects uh, guru himself. Um, director Lloyd Kaufman, uh, creator of Child's Play, Don Mancini, Larry Cohen, uh, director extraordinaire, another director, Stuart Gordon, Tom Woodruff Jr., Mick Garris, Brian Usna, Robbie Morgan, Andre Gower, Sean Cunningham, Ken Sagos, Lori Cardill, Ryan Turek, Harry Manfredini, and Phil Noble Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine. So they got a uh, cast of characters here too and there's a few other people i know heather Wixon's another uh like columnist uh, or, a, or a vlogger or blogger uh in the horror world who i actually know uh, pretty well so It was nice to see her. Uh, A gentleman from Fright Rags was on there. So they they tried to get a varied cast of actors and fans and writers and things like that, which I appreciated. And they were able also, too, to get a lot of licensing to show uh, the footage and stuff from the movies. So I give them credit where that uh, is concerned. Because, you know, say what you want about the subject matter. It was a nice-looking documentary. I thought that they, you know, they, they did their fair share of getting... You know, photographs and things from movies and uh, stills and production photos and actual footage itself. That that stuff made this like a higher level documentary as far as just the way it was made.
1: Yeah, I agree. Visually, is it was, it was um, enticing, and I did I did like the flow. Like you said, it got choppy when they kind of bounced around inexplicably, like you were mentioning. Yep. Um, But other than that, the majority of it, uh, like I was saying, was was well-paced. Like I kind of – for how long it was and, again, watching it kind of in in pieces, nonetheless, it was like – just a breezy watch just again to bounce around each of these worlds and stuff. I I like the aesthetic that he used with all the posters in the shot. Yep. And then it would focus on like the subject at hand and, you know, go into the poster of the movie they were about to talk about. That was a cool dynamic, you know, even just seeing some of the movies they, they didn't really reference involved in it. So at least they had their posters up there and stuff like that.
0: And I'm not going to talk about it on this one because we're doing a part two to this one next week. You can find out next week on the show which poster I not only disagreed with, but I was really, really pissed off that they did include. So I'll have a full explanation of that on the show next week. Stay tuned. But there is one that they had during this that I literally, it made me want to shut this off completely. And
1: that's not (laughs) fun. I'm going to be interested to, to, to hear that.
0: And it's not fanboy bullshit. So I'll have a full explanation of that next week on the show. But I did like that aspect. I thought it was really good as far as presentation goes. And as you know, somebody that does collect original theatrical movie posters, I love poster art. So as much of that stuff as you could possibly give me Uh, and just bringing that point up. It's a little disappointing because they did talk a lot about the VHS uh, cover art for a lot of these movies and how big of a deal that was during that era, uh, which they're absolutely right about. I really enjoyed that part of it, but I felt that they missed an opportunity here to maybe track down and talk to some artists and some of the people that worked on some of the cover art. I know, for example, a lot of the same people did a lot of Charlie Band stuff for Full Moon and Empire Pictures they definitely could have tracked down at least a couple people to bring that type of perspective to the documentary just because I feel like it's so poignant to the actual decade that the documentary is covering. Yeah,
1: because I know it's the same artist that did all the, the Nightmare on Elm Streets too. And they bring that
0: up. Like, they she don't bring up the artist. Yeah, they bring up, up the artwork. Talk. But it's like, it would right. have been really cool. I don't even know who it is off the top of my head or if he's still alive, but it would have been really great to, to see that. And it, I also think, too, just to throw it in, it would have been kind of cool to see somebody presenting posters uh, in the documentary as well. Uh, not just that, that graphic that I really liked, but just to see physical versions of the actual movie posters now uh, would have been another good selling point because this was f- the first decade where there was just more than theatrical posters. For the first time ever, there was video store posters. So I thought they could have use that a little bit because what they kind of did in this that lost me like you you alluded to earlier was and they really don't start doing this until part two which I'll get into more next week but when it starts out they're going year by year and it has a really good flow to it and I was really enjoying the documentary Uh, and then as they get through the mid 80s it starts getting a little bit more choppy And they start going back in time and talking about different years and it gets really bad in the second part, which we'll get to next week as well. But that it starts to throw you off a little bit. And at one point in the documentary, I was even like, did they just abandon the year thing completely? And then it went back into it again. And I'm like, oh, I guess not. Yeah. So that was disappointing. I thought they could have been. It's you know, what's really weird. We. We've talked about this numerous times on here, and I I remember specifically with The Last Dance and with the Bruce Lee 30 for 30, where we were saying, like, how at first we didn't really like how they were going, jumping back in time and stuff, but, like, as you watch it, you're like, oh, that's it's really cool how they did that. This is one where you're like, I don't like how they jump through the time, and when it's over with, you still don't like it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that because, again, you're, you're kind of getting used to the flow of it and it kind of takes you out of it. Yeah. That's that's the biggest problem with it,
0: obviously. And it gets a little aimless in that regard. But the thing is, now, they did pick decent people to be in this. There was one guy, however, that was just throughout the entire fucking thing. This guy was on my nerves and he was just like a, a, a fan or a, I didn't even get his name because I hate this guy so bad. Um, But he just, it's basically like every time he comes up, he just explains the most mundane, stupid shit to you like you're four years old. When meanwhile, like I told you when we were initially talking about this, they didn't cover any movies that I've never seen or never heard of before, let alone Anything that would be like mind blowing to me. So then to have this idiot on here like Jason Voorhees, then goes to the camp and then he starts killing teenagers. And I'm like, I know he did it for fucking twelve movies. I don't need. Yeah, that was the one that was like idiot.
1: like the nerdy. Oh, he was yeah, the like worst the
0: historian type dude. I guess. Like, I don't know what yeah, the he fuck. Wasn't he wasn't even
1: like an author or anything.
0: Maybe like he might have been an author. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. It's just like, God, this dude's terrible. And every time he pops up, it's like that. Or it's like, you know, like Freddy Krueger was in their nightmares. And it's like, who the fuck at this point watching this documentary does not understand that that's the fucking core base of what Freddy Krueger does. Like, come on, dude. Yeah, Captain. Obvious. Yeah, with everything. So minus his shitty input, um, everybody else I thought on here did a really good job and and added either personal tales of working on a movie or adding personal tales that they had of renting movies or fan experiences and stuff. So I thought that was actually a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed that part of this.
1: Yeah, and like um, one of the things that stuck out to me was I was saying earlier, like. Um, Guys that I've I've seen in you know special features and different things that I've uh, tracked down and watched in the past, but Joe Dante really, really stood out to me, and um, Mick Garris really stood out to me probably because like I've just heard like sporadic things here and there. So seeing him explain some of his takes on things was was really cool too. Yep, you know that that just initially uh, stood out to me, and then uh, just to get get back on track on the chron- chronology of it, hey y'all. You know, um, do you want to start going over some of the movies that they talked about um, where they start in 80 with like The Fog and
0: The Shining? Yeah, I think The Shining, The Fog, Friday the 13th, I believe, is the first one that they did. Um, it's and, and I thought that they did a pretty good choice of going through these because they they managed to get the general temperature of the year. I guess is the best way to yeah. put it where it's like the, in 1980, they're talking to John Carpenter because he had, he was a poignant figure that year with stuff like escape from New York. And then the fog, like he was releasing a lot of movies at the time. They go on later to talk and they about got Sean Cunningham, Sean Cunningham from yeah. Friday the 13th, Robbie Morgan from Friday the 13th. Um, oddly enough, I was kind of surprised. No Savini. Yeah.
1: Very surprising. They had, they had another Pittsburgh uh, guy, though, who was really good in it, I thought, um, with uh, Why Am I Brain farting from the Fog and... Oh, Tom Atkins. A million things, Night of the Creeps. Tom Atkins,
0: yeah. Yeah, he was really good on there, too. I thought that he added some solid insight to the stuff that he was talking about. Um, and you know what? There was something else. I'm trying to think off the top of my head what it is. Of course, I didn't write it in my notes. Um, but it was something with John Carpenter, and it's a little bit later on. Uh, where him actually making the thing cost him fire starter.
1: Oh yeah, that was interesting. I uh, didn't know any about any of that, and that that was actually uh, our man Mark Lester. Mark Lester, Lester. I ended yep, up getting it because <laughs> it and, just, and you know that's what? A what's real connection?
0: Th- this is funny. Do you know why Mark Lester would be the guy to get that job? He's a pyromaniac.
1: No. <laughs> You asked me to guess, hey, (laughs) Uh,
0: no, that's not. But that's a great uh, that's the best answer you could have possibly given. I love it. Uh, But the thing is, if you look at all the shit that Mark Lester's made, which we've talked about here on the show before, he's basically kind of like a low rent exploitation guy. So whenever you hire John Carpenter to make your movie and then you have to fire him, which they did, uh, they were already behind schedule. So the best case scenario for them was to bring in someone like a Mark Lester, a guy that knows how to work with a limited budget. He's a guy that they knew would be able to turn in a movie on time and on budget. So that's why somebody like him would get that job as opposed to, you know, because it is a Stephen King story. So it's not like this is some bullshit movie. You know what I mean? At that time, Stephen King was big business. So, you know, they Wanted to get somebody credible in there, but there's no way they would have been able to just get anybody of note. They had to get somebody in there that could work within the budget. And that's immediately probably why after Carpenter got fired, when they went to those directors, they were probably all like, no, nah, I'm fucking good. That's all right. I'm there's a reason why Carpenter didn't do it. And he's not because he's an asshole. He, he well, always he does. He wanted, he
1: wanted. Yeah, he had the vision. and He needed a bigger budget and they weren't giving it to him. So he's like, I can't do this.
0: Well, he got fired. With this budget. Because of the thing. Because he was the director, Uh, he was working on Firestarter, and then the thing performed horribly. So they were like, yeah, "Yeah, you're done. We're not going to, we're going to change course and use somebody else. Because at the time, he had a deal with Universal. And that was also part of something that happened around that time that made it so George Romero never bothered to go to Hollywood. Because John Carpenter was the prime catalyst in trying to get Romero to come out. And once Romero kind of went out to California and saw what the deal was, he pretty much told Carpenter that he had no fucking interest in it. Fuck Hollywood. And went back to Pittsburgh and signed a three-picture deal with the UFDC, which is the United Film Distributor Company, which is completely independent of the Hollywood studio system. So there's a lot of stuff like this that's going to get brought up through the documentary because chain reactions at the time through the industry gave people work and – had other people lose out on work. And I was kind of disappointed because I felt like they didn't cover a lot of that stuff in this, which would have been interesting at the time. And uh, one of the earlier movies that they talk about in this is of course, Poltergeist. And Joe Bob Briggs is somebody that is 100% certain that Toby Hooper directed that movie. And I still call bullshit on it to this day. And there's been, he said, let me,
1: let me tell you right now, I'm making the record straight. Toby Hooper directed this film.
0: No, he didn't. And I know, like, for a multitude of reasons that he didn't. And the thing is that a lot of people don't realize uh, is that Toby Hooper would eventually go on to have issues with cocaine. And it would really, really cost him a lot of work. And it's specifically, here's one that, like, everybody knows about. Like, this is a fact, and I'll tell you why. Is, and I don't even know if you're aware of this. Did you know that Toby Hooper was the original director for Return of the Living Dead? No, I did not. So he was, and it was going to be in 3D. And there were actually poster art that that people have seen that's been released of Toby Hooper's name on the poster and everything. Well, Toby Hooper got fired from the movie because he was just fucking up. And that was probably around the time where he was the worst with the cocaine and five years prior making poltergeist, he was still pretty bad with the cocaine, but he was friendly with Steven Spielberg. It's also been said at the time that after the whole debacle with jaws getting snubbed from the Oscars, that Spielberg was essentially playing the field at that point and knew that making horror movies was not good for that, which he's probably right. So, he essentially wanted to make a horror movie and didn't really want to put his name on it, so he brought in Toby Hooper. And I'm not saying Toby Hooper didn't direct things on Poltergeist, because he certainly did. Um, but did he direct the entire movie? No, he absolutely did not. So watch the movie. If you know their movies, I think it's pretty glaringly clear what's what and who's who and who did what. Um,
1: yeah, because that was like they brought up like specific aspects to defend the Toby Hooper directed it. And then Joe Bob himself even said, I mean, it did have that Spielberg glow. Yep. But, you know, Rich, Richard Donner movies have that Spielberg glow. But that still doesn't, you know, say well, that Spielberg didn't have way more hands on than, than they
0: want to say. You know? He's absolutely right about Donner. that Those movies did have that kind of glow. And I know exactly what he's talking about. But here's the question. Oh, of course. Yeah. Sit down. And watch all Toby Hooper's movies. All of them. None of them look like that. None of them move like that. None of them walk and talk like they just that's not how Toby Hooper operates. And also, too, usually whenever a director makes something that is supremely successful, then and you know this as somebody because this is something that obviously I'd say you were trying to achieve. What's the goal when you make a movie?
1: Of course, to make enough to make another movie.
0: Okay. And what would be the best case scenario of making a movie? What, what do you... Okay, Jared, you just made uh, The Unsung. What is the best case scenario for your movie? It makes a lot of money. Okay. And why? People watch it.
1: Okay. Pay
0: for it. And what does that mean for the movie you make after that, whenever that movie is a big deal?
1: Yeah, there's that much more pressure
0: or you're going to get more opportunity because it's like, well, you already made something that's successful. If
1: you have a success. Exactly
0: right. So that's perfect scenario, right? Like, okay, after that, you're going to get the opportunity to make more stuff and probably, too, because Poltergeist was a major studio film that the studios were going to be willing to play ball. Right. Yep. And that's not really what happened with Toby Hooper. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you look, and I'm going right now to just double check, okay, to make sure. So he was working in TV and stuff like that in the 70s. Um, he had previously got uh, fired from a movie called The Dark in 1979. So that was kind of like first showings that there were some problems here. So The Funhouse is 81. Poltergeist is 82. Poltergeist was a pretty successful movie. It actually got... Uh, Toby Hooper to do something that wasn't uh, a big budget deal, but it was a big deal in the long run. In 1983, he made Dancing With Myself, the Billy Idol video. So he did a big video, okay? And then what's the next thing that he makes after that? Life Force in 1985. That's pretty that fucking like, weird. Um, so it's like, so yeah. why wouldn't Toby Hooper have any success or any opportunities at success? from a big budget studio after poltergeist then it, because it was a successful movie. If he directed See, it.
1: My take on it though, too. Hey, Ed is like, if it's all these years later, I don't feel like that would be controversial for Spielberg. Like now, cause like you said, he was kind of playing the game at the time. I get that. That's before he was like the, the film, you know, directing God that he is now Spielberg, But you would think now he would just say like, well, here's you know, here's the story like I I directed these scenes like I did this and that I don't know, like I don't I don't feel like directing or not directing is
0: is like this controversial thing like all these years later. I just always had the vibe that he liked Toby and just didn't really want to come in and take the credit from him. Even if he did it, it's like, I got to make all the money yeah. and everything, so I'm not going to try and...
1: Because they say in there, he was a big fan of uh, the Texas Chainsaw. Absolutely.
0: Massacre, That's his favorite. It was cool to hear. I never knew that. That's his favorite <laughs> horror movie of all time. That's awesome. So, you know, I mean, there are things... And that, there is a bit of admirement, because uh, Toby Hooper was on his way to being successful before Spielberg even really got started, so... You know there is that there there is a you know Toby Hooper was on a higher playing field than Spielberg at one point, so it's not like Toby Hooper would have been like completely emboldened to to Spielberg. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't have been like doing whatever he wanted and shit like that. So. The, right. there's re there's a lot of reasons here why I feel this way. And it's always been kind of debated. There's people on the movie that have said that, that Toby didn't direct it or at least he didn't direct all of it. So
1: that, that was going to be my next point. There's a lot of people involved. You would think all again, all these years later that something would come out concrete, you know, and I don't know, again, they kind of covered a small portion, like a sliver, you know, in with Billy Bob or, um, you know, his comments Joe on Bob, it. Yeah. But Joe Bob, but it's like, they they really don't, you know, he would think that with all these people working on it, somebody would have said something. And, and what was like Joe Bob to, to say, like, I'm telling you this now, like, this is fact, like, he directed this movie. Yeah, I just, like, how does he have that confidence to say that? You know what I mean? They didn't really divulge into that. No,
0: I just feel that that's his opinion on it. And yeah, it's,
1: which is fine. I mean, I get that. You know,
0: and that's that's okay. I mean, and I'm not. I'm somebody too that like a lot of horror fans shit on Toby Hooper, and that it's completely unwarranted because again, like we've kind of said with other people, I'm not saying you have to love the guy's work, but at the end of the day, he did make the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is better than almost every movie ever made. Like. What are you going to do? He's in that class of dudes. Like, he's in the same class with George Romero for Night of the Living Dead and fucking Scorsese with a whole bunch of stuff and Francis Ford Coppola with The Godfather. And, you know, there's certain people. The carpenter pe- with Halloween. Exa- there's certain people that get in that lexicon just because they did one thing. And that one thing is such a high level that it's it gets that type of recognition. And Toby Hooper, to me, is a guy that's in that class. And he's made other really good stuff, too. But even if that was the only good thing he ever did, it's still better than anything that maybe any, like, uh, other than a handful of movies ever made.
1: Yeah. So. Very, very interesting topic. That's why I think we side tangent on it but yeah i was i was very curious to see your take on that hey
0: yeah and it's you know it's an interesting thing i i get the point i was kind of underwhelmed by the way they covered it in the documentary but nonetheless uh still pretty decent stuff here you know we saw a nice little portion on the thing uh that i really enjoyed too uh we saw with uh keith david and obviously john carpenter and you know for people that might not be familiar with it like the thing of course it's a huge cult classic now it's one of the greatest horror films of all time um but upon its initial release no one cared no one went and saw it it did terrible so um and that's kind of been the story of john carpenter's career in a lot of ways where he's made a bunch of really classics in the cult realm but when they originally were out in theaters they did barely made a mark and that's outside of the original Halloween. Timing
1: is huge, man, with everything. Life is timing. Yeah. It's just how it is, you know?
0: And he was becoming a legend in the horror world. But as far as the world of Hollywood, he was just becoming a liability um, because they were losing a lot of money each time out with his movies. And that's crazy to think about. Um, But John Carpenter's had one of the most interesting careers because of that. Um, He was a big deal and he was always a big deal. But he was able to float under the radar and do things a little bit differently than most because he got support from, you know, like the underground loved John Carpenter. And there was a time where Hollywood really liked John Carpenter and a lot of directors respect John Carpenter. So he could kind of play ball in all these different fields. And it equated to what is essentially a really interesting career overall.
1: Yeah, man, I mean. Just, just the fact that if you look at his IMDb, you know, like, like you were saying, some people have like the one hit wonders. I mean, it's like film after film, like you say, Christine, and of course, Halloween, and goes on and on. Like even, even like revisiting the Fog. I haven't watched that in forever, Hayat. I actually want to revisit that, but it's great. It's yeah.
0: You know, it's funny because. Obviously, because he's such a big-time horror director, you get a lot of fans that, you know, just in conversation, what's your favorite Carpenter? What's the best Carpenter movie? And, you know, obviously, Halloween was super groundbreaking, and I understand it. I love Escape from New York. Like, that's right there with anything that he ever made to me. But if I had to, like, put a definitive stamp on anything, I would say that, like, The Fog is easily his most underrated Because it's that good to begin with. And it for some reason, it just kind of gets lost in the mix of all of those other movies when it probably shouldn't because it's really unique and it has a great cast and it's a really good movie and it stands the test of time. And it's, you know, there's so much cool stuff about it, but it just for some reason doesn't get I don't know if it's, and it could be just simply it didn't play on cable as much in the 80s and 90s as the other stuff did. So it just kind of, falls below certain people's radar
1: yeah not enough people know about it that sort of thing
0: yeah which is weird but it definitely deserves a look i highly recommend if anybody out there um is familiar with john carpenter and is saying to themselves well i've never seen the fog like rectify that because it's a it's a hell of a movie it's an absolute classic and it's one of the best horror films of the 1980s um the, one of the things I wanted to say on this, too, is specifically 1980 that they brought up in this. And if you guys listen to the podcast, you probably already know where I'm going with this. I was really disappointed to not even see a mention of Cannibal Holocaust on here um, from 1980. And I know, again, it's not iconic 80s horror, but, you know, neither is a lot of the shit they talked about on here.
1: Yeah, that's that's where it comes down to being a p- opinion based kind of decision, you know. And like you said, the the writer he was the writer director of this uh, first time, by the way. So, uh, good job to. Um to what was his name? How do I forget? His last name's is Wiener. Oh yeah. <laughs> I forget his first name, the the director. Uh This was his directorial debut, David A. Weiner. give him a shout out. So he did a good job, but I think a lot of this comes just from his own, you know, I, I feel like I'm sure he had like editors and things, but it seems like a lot of these decisions, I mean, he's the writer director are coming just from his opinion, you know, and his perspective on it. Yeah, so. And
0: I understand too, from the perspective of like, You're going to pick certain movies because maybe maybe those are the certain actors and directors that you've been able to speak with. So, like, if you have Stuart Gordon, of course, you're going to want to talk about ReAnimator and other movies that he's made. I mean, that makes perfect sense. So I get that. Um, And I understand that that's not always possible to just get everybody and their mother under the sun to be in your movie. Um, I thought they did a really good job with that, though. I felt that even the people that, you know, like I I felt like the people that they got also were people that had really good opinions on stuff that they're not in, too. So that kind of added to it. And they were able to give you a little bit of the idea of what the climate was like at the time working in that industry, which I thought was a cool perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because it was such a unique time, man, and that's that's another thing this brings back is just growing up in the '80s, and as I always say, uh, the nostalgia factor is a huge, huge part of this for me. Oh, of course. I mean, and just remembering those times because you know they, they talk about the the times a lot too, like away from the horror movies, you know, all the different actors in it and um, what was going on, you know, in these varying years through the '80s too, and it just brought back a lot of memories, and you know, you always got to love nostalgia.
0: Yeah, it just works, man. It really does. I mean, that's part of the reason why we said, too, like this is more of a walk down memory lane type thing. You're not so yeah, much exactly. looking to just learn everything you can. Um, it's just more revisiting a lot of it, I guess.
1: And that's how I thought about this. This is something that I'll throw on in the background and stuff. You know, again, just to be back in that 80s horror world, you know, and just bouncing all over the place from movie to movie. That, that's probably the b- biggest um positive that I had towards it personally.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. I felt like it, it caught a lot of stuff that I thought that it should have. And uh, overall, um, part one was really good. Um, I thought that uh, at this point watching it, I'm like, you know, this is like it's it's going to be a definitive documentary. There's certain things I don't like about it, but it's really on its way. And um, you guys are going to have to find out next week to find out my full review along with the Jays. And to find out what we thought of part two, but you know, part one, you know, halfway through, what would would you say? You agree there? You liking it at this point? What do you think?
1: Oh, I—I'll sum it up and just say, definitely a lot more good than bad. Yeah,
0: I'd agree with that.
1: You know, yeah, like you said, there's some stuff you can definitely pick out. There's stuff. I mean, like we said at the outset of this review, dude, it's literally impossible to cover everything. Yeah, and then and then plus you're trying to please guys that are humongous '80s horror movie fans and grew up in the era. So that in and of itself is another task, you know. So all those things considered, and, and more good than bad for for my take on on part one going into part two. Uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed again just being back in the in the world and getting motivated to uh re a lot of stuff and things like that so uh looking forward to covering part two with you hey and i mean we could have probably turned this into maybe even four parts with with our knowledge yeah w- ways we could side tangent but i think we covered the first part good here and we'll we'll slice into to part two and sum it up next week
0: absolutely so that's uh, about as good as i could have put it myself the jay so we're gonna take a quick commercial break and when we come back guys as we say here on the program it is gonna be time for the most action-packed segment in weekly podcasting, none other than Thursday Night Prime With Terror in Beverly Hills from 1989. So we'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast for IWC. The International Wrestling Cartel has been Western Pennsylvania's largest and most exciting wrestling promotion for over 18 years. IWC has grown to become one of the most successful independent wrestling promotions today in the United States. It was the home base for superstars such as Elias, DJ Z, and Britt Baker, and many more. For more information, go to iwcwrestling.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at IWC Wrestling. Follow us on Twitter at IWC Wrestling and on Instagram at IWC underscore Wrestling. That's IWC, the International Wrestling Cartel, for the best in independent professional wrestling. It's time for Thursday Night Pride. And we're back. It is time once again for some action-packed bullshit with Thursday Night Prime. This week is Terror in Beverly Hills from 1989. This one stars, I guess, uh, Frank Stallone in the lead role. (laughs) Of the lead role, I should say, of Hack Stone. That's his name (laughs) in this. Hack Stone. (laughs) Um, so, when the president's daughter is kidnapped, it's up to an ex-Marine to save her. The problem is that the terrorist leader has a lingering hatred for him, as he has been wrongfully blamed for the death of his wife and children. The action heats up as the two mortal enemies confront each other with extreme violence. Now, that's the, the synopsis for the movie that I had nothing to do with, because I'll be honest with you. Um, Jesus Christ. There's very little action that heats up anywhere. Um, Frank Stallone in this one, uh, as I said, is hack stone um, doesn't show up for the first 45 minutes of the movie. Um, I was willing to do some research to find out what I could about this one. And I found out that uh, they could only afford Frank Stallone for two days of shooting. Um, but I <laughs> and he's the lead, <laughs> yeah, the lead in the fucking movie. Um what, this Could film for two days. William Smith shows up as the president in the most awkward fucking scene filled oh, with terrible God. ADR I may have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. But, but, and I'm ashamed of myself here, because last week on the show I made fun of Cameron Mitchell for probably being a pickled fucking mess. By the time he made this movie, he still he was the show stealer this week, and he was I a pickled fucking mess. But holy shit he's the only good thing in this whole fucking movie but he's uh, he had me die, He's yes. really good though it's yeah. he's so good it's fucking out of place it makes no sense <laughs> I mean yeah. dude okay now I'm not trying to sound like some fucking tech whiz here. I do know a lot of differences between movies when they're shot on 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter or 8 millimeter or video and or digital and whatnot. Okay, not perfect with it, but I have a pretty good idea. But the question I pose to you, the Jay, being a filmmaker, what the fuck was this movie shot on? Because it it looks like like dog shit. Like it's it... like
1: we got Uncle Simon's. Um camcorder
0: it's like if somebody was making a movie with a camcorder that had a a plastic bag over the lens like i remember
1: when uh we debuted our backyard wrestling documentary and and people like that had never seen are like wow this is way better footage than i expected at all you know and this is a goddamn feature film
0: yeah there was money behind this there were producers yeah money behind it Um, and dude, this is the, I I have to bring this up because you brought the money factor up. So obviously Frank Stallone is the the quote unquote star in this, but have you seen any of the posters for this movie? Oh yeah. The funniest shit of all time. Now I'm going to say how the, the wording is on the poster, right? So at the top, it says his name and this is how it says it. Frank Stallone,
1: <laughs> yeah. starring Frank's super small. It is starring it Stallone. Frank Stallone, <laughs> yeah. and they I, and there's another poster, an alternative poster that made him look like um, fucking De Niro from Deer Hunter.
0: Yeah, mixed. In, you saw that mixed one. in with Rambo. <laughs> So they just they want you to be like because there was a time in this world where people watched movies, but they weren't obsessed with them like we kind of are or even close to being as obsessed with these things as we yeah, are just casual. So it's like, yes, some idiot would go into a video store and see the cover of this movie and think like be confused and know that they would want to rent it because they sort of realized that it might be Rambo but it also looks like <laughs> De Niro sort of fuck it. This is just
1: Stallone big as hell at the top. Yeah.
0: So it's like, Oh, I'm renting this. And then they might've killed themselves after they watched it because this movie, <laughs> I mean, dude, let's, oh. Hey,
1: Ed, let's start from the beginning. Here please because, lead me down so the road I'm to hell it. here, please. I'm watching it. My wife's in the other room and she's like, what the fuck are you watching? Is that Aladdin? <laughs> There's this Arabian music. <laughs> At the whole outset, that is just ridiculous. And like you said, it is so fucking boring. Nothing happens. It's the fucking Middle Eastern terrorists the whole time. Frank Stallone, as you mentioned, it was close to a half hour or like you said, 40 some minutes. Before he's even fucking in it at his karate studio, when you find out that, like, in real life, like you, you have mentioned, hey, Ed, that they only had him for two goddamn days. Because I was going to ask you if you, like, knew the story behind that. Because, I mean, as film guys, you pick up on that right
0: away. Yeah, it's like, a dude, trope. This is the
1: story of the movie. He He's probably in it for 10 minutes total. Yep. An hour and a half, an hour and 28 minute movie. He's probably in it for, I'd guess, 25 minutes.
0: And then I'm laughing my ass off watching this because I'm like, dude. Fucking Frank Stallone, the only dude that's, like, legitimately... And by the way, I found this out. This is an Israeli film. This was not a movie made by an Israeli man. This is an Israeli film made by Israeli people for people in Israel. So, I'm like, fucking Frank Stallone, grifting foreigners Your brother's name because there's no way in fuck they're getting him. So people are contacting you because they're like your brother's famous people here. Stupid. They don't know. I'll give you 50 grand like this dude made probably good money to go and fuck around in Israel for two days.
1: He probably asked Sly, like, you know, should I do this for 50 grand? Like, of course, 50,000,
0: two days. Okay, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, by 89, Sly wasn't talking to him anymore.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I would guess that. Dude, at the beginning, they're on the, the plane, and the stewardess comes up to the one dude, and he's like... Don't touch me, infidel. Because she's trying to get his seatbelt on. Oh my, him. god, dude.
0: <laughs> and then, okay, I started to realize what I was in for pretty early on here. So, the main terrorists, they're on an airplane. And the one dude gets up to go take a piss. And somebody's in the bathroom and he's waiting for her. And it's like, he comes out of the bathroom. And, <laughs> yeah, that chick. and she's like, thanks. And walks past him. And then as soon as he's like past her, she's like, you filthy Arab. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, what the fuck is happening here? Like, what is <laughs> yeah. like, Israeli guy must get in subtle racist jabs in through his screenplay and we're i don't know but somebody's gonna call them filthy arabs at some point in this movie and that was pretty early on so apparently that was important to get into the plot of things (laughs) for some reason
1: In some of my next bullet points there's kind of like a for lack of a better term subplot with like the uh the local news the news channel goofs and at one point um they're up in a helicopter and there's these topless chicks in the back of a pickup truck, and oh, that b- might be one of the funniest scenes ever. Because he's like, "Oh, they're looking right at me, Tim."
0: Yeah, it's he's like, "Oh, yeah," and that's exactly there what I'm go. talking about. Because this this is an yeah. Israeli-made movie, and it's made to take yeah. place in America. So, like, what I realized at this point in the movie is, I'm like. So this is the shit that Israeli people think just happens in America. Like some dudes in a helicopter is just going to see some titties because America, that's what we do. (laughs) Like, I mean, I get it. Like we've we've done plenty of stupid shit in American films about, you know, foreign cultures. But I saw that and I'm like, oh, this is a person that's never been to the United States making a movie about the United States.
1: Yeah, and then like you said, the camera, the Cameron Mitchell show starts as Captain Stills, and um, at one point, the, he gets the phone call, and they're you know, talking terrible shit, but he's doing his thing, making his best of it, and at one point, he's like,
0: Yes, absolutely. I'm watching the goddamn news. What are you watching, a With porno movie? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, he's great in this, because there's another scene where he's like, it's like he gets a phone call, and this is pretty much the call. Hello? Yeah, it's me. Oh, hell, I don't know. He's a fucking asshole.
1: He's, yeah, a, fucking yeah, asshole. he's a fucking
0: asshole. I don't know. <laughs> what do you want me to say? The guy's a fucking asshole. Like That's the whole scene. He's just calling people a fucking <laughs> asshole repeatedly. And here's the thing. It sounds like I'm shitting on this. This is the most impo- like enjoyable part of the movie. Is any time this dude's on camera, just drunk, chewing up fucking scenery is better than everything else happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because some of my other notes, um, the one girl gets kidnapped. And then this whole thing, it's again, it's the unintentional comedy. It's like it seems like it's a fucking comedy, but they're being dead serious about the old bean factory. Oh, they must say the old bean factory 20 times. Like they're at the old bean factory. Yep. It's like calling all cars. They're at the old bean factory. I'm like the fucking old bean factory, which makes sense now. Like you said, it's an Israeli movie. So that's where that comes from. Like they go to an old bean factory and I have to like, what the fuck is an old bean? factory? Yeah. First off, like a factory that used to make beans. Here's the
0: thing. It's it's either a bean factory or it's just an abandoned building because there's no fucking way that if a bean factory went out of business, that it's just like going to sit there like oh the, it's down to the, the, to the point where people call it the old bean factory like it's been yeah. there forever
1: Gr- growing up like we had to go drink at the old bean factory yeah
0: and it's like we've how did you guys find out about this place like it's been in our families for generations this abandoned shit house factory in town that no one's ever <laughs> torn down or rebuilt anything at ever like okay and uh
1: Captain Stills, some of his best quotes that I jotted down. Um he hates the news reporter, Lamada yeah, He's going eight. At one shit point he's like, Lamata. Yeah, he's like, Lamotta, why don't you open an Italian restaurant? <laughs> and then he's like, uh, at one point, it's like one of the only scenes he has with Stallone because like we already mentioned. That's the Stallone's best the worst
0: scene too, right? I've ever seen yeah, in he anything does Yeah, he,
1: he does a monologue. Well, it's... <laughs> camera, can Dude, it's... Mitchell. And Stallone does like the clap, like, good job. Well, it's, you know? Dude,
0: it's... Okay, what you have is one actor who's good, knows how to deliver made-up dialogue on his own and can deliver it convincingly. And then you have Frank Stallone. So, like, the whole <laughs> yeah. fucking scene consists of dialogue, like, well, what do you think the best thing that we could do here is? I want to send you in. I'm trying to save your wife and child who've been kidnapped. And he's like, I mean, I, I guess if they've been kidnapped, then uh, do something. Yeah. And I'm like, the- Jesus, like. This motherfucker filmed for two days and it's nice to see that whatever he's been paid, he doesn't feel is enough to make him actually try or give a fuck. Because he is, ho- dude, he makes his brother look like fucking Ben Kingsley.
1: Yeah, like in this scene, it's worth bringing up because this this is a part that has like the horrific story behind all this where Hackstone was friends with the main or Israeli terrorist, but the terrorist thinks Stallone killed his family. Yeah, but he didn't. Yep, and it makes no sense None. at all. And it like you know he tells this whole story during like you know retorting to Captain Stills, Cameron Mitchell's uh, monologue, and he says like you know how they're tyrants, and then Cameron Mitchell gets all serious and he's like, I hate tyrants. Yeah. that's like my quote from this i hate tyrants he's like well (laughs) like don't don't we all we all know as far
0: as they're concerned they're all a bunch of goddamn tyrants i hate tyrants (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: some some of the other highlights getting into the end were uh the the one like you mentioned um Cameron Mitchell talks Stallone into still going because uh, he wants to go save his family. So he has to talk him into still sticking with the mitch the mission. And he promises him that the police will take care of the family; they'll save them. He's like, "I guarantee it. I'll, you know, I'll make sure that your family's safe." So Hackstone like agrees to continue on with the mission, and the police like raid the goofs to go get his wife and child, and the one black dude that's like um, Still's right hand man. Yep. He shoots the one dude with a shotgun literally seven times. Yep. The dude falls into the pool all goofy, and, he and then he literally shooting. says, "He keeps shooting him," and then he, he turns around. And he says, "That guy made my day." Yeah. Okay, as like a take on Clint Eastwood. Yeah,
0: well, because of course this movie is just literally like this is the way I see it. Like if you just had a hand filled with mashed potatoes. And it's like you're just you you take (laughs) another handful and you're like Dirty Harry and another one. You're like Rambo and Magnum P.I. And every weird ass thing that somebody from Israel in the 80s would think about America that people from America don't think about at all is all rolled into one movie here. And it sucks. <laughs> bad. <laughs> yeah. It's
1: Yeah, cuz the the whole the whole end they finally face off. Oh. It's uh Stallone versus the, you know, Abdul and there, there's like no, you know, no build up or anything. Stallone's like uh chasing him, he shoots at him a couple times. He got the girl. She ends up escaping. It looks like him and Stallone like Stallone's trying to talk him into like I could I can walk you out of here. We're friends. And then all of a sudden Abdul just sprints at the window, dives out the fucking window, and then gets shot literally a hundred times, but his head never hits the ground. Did you notice that? Hey, Eddie's laying down, but like the actor, like never lays his head on the ground and like Stallone comes out and like hugs his body. It is just a fucking mess, but hilarious nonetheless.
0: So you know how like occasionally whenever, Uh, We do Thursday Night Prime, and I talk about using letterboxed on here frequently. I find some doozy reviews. Well, this one, is there's a few of them that I'm going to read. They're all pretty short, but they're all good. This one's from Timothy Bartolini. He says, from what I understand, 130 years ago, just seeing a moving picture was enough to blow minds. If you could time travel and show these same people terror in Beverly Hills... They would tell you that it sucks. If you turn the sound up, they tell you to turn it off. Then they would look you right in your time traveling face and tell you there isn't nearly enough Frank Stallone in it. Very few films are this goddamn bad. <laughs> now, here's here's uh. another one. Insomnia. Oh, it's it, this is from Cham, okay? Insomnia, can't sleep. This movie can't put me to sleep, then fuck it. Frank Stallone LOL. Yeesh. I love it. Long stretches of plot unfold without Frank Stallone on screen. He's really not in it that much to be the star. Not until the end does he get to do anything at all. Dude is totally stone faced when he gets the news that his wife and child have been kidnapped. Which, <laughs> and then this is a, this is this might be my favorite. This is from Josh Underwood. It started off pretty not great. And then it kept up that pace, but here is a lot of weird choices being made. Weird shots of terrorists going to the bathroom on a plane. Weird Pepsi product placement. Shots of terrorists going through the yellow pages in a phone book. Derek, a side character who doesn't even really need to exist. William Smith as a very emotionally mute president. A hideout in, quote, the old bean factory off the 101. Also, Cameron Mitchell is a chain-smoking chief of police in L.A., and he's really worried about his pension. Frank Stallone is a terrible person, but ex-Marine Hackstone is probably a great guy. oh,
1: That's great. Sums it up, man. And I'm going to sum it up here Um, because, yeah, I mean, I found myself entertained by how bad it was. It was one of those movies and. As we said last week, sometimes the better ones, there's not as much to, to riff on, you know, like these terrible ones are just cut up. Like I can picture me and you just watching this stone together and just riffing on it the whole time having a blast. Oh, yeah. But the uh the tagline, the terror in Beverly Hills, they brought terrorism to our streets. Only one man could stop them just when you thought the streets were safe. So the usual schlocky, just pointless, self-explanatory, horrible, uncreative taglines. And let's just end the Frank Stallone talk. Hey, Ed,
0: I give this one an obvious one single star. Yeah, this one is from director John Myers, who besides this made another movie called Saturday Night Bath in Apple Valley in 1965 and didn't make another movie till 1989. And he never made another movie again. Thankfully, uh, that is. And I'm with you. This is one star. Uh, outside of Cameron Mitchell, I didn't really like anything about this one, and uh, this one, in my opinion, I don't know if you agree with me here, might be the award winner. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I, I don't, I don't see what could beat it. Yep, so it's a one-star movie for me, and this so far has the award for the worst movie we've ever reviewed on Thursday Night Prime. So that's it this week for Thursday night prime. Of course, that was terror in Beverly Hills. Do yourself a favor and don't watch it uh, because seriously, it's really bad. And uh, I have a doozy for you next week. The J this one is uh, a time capsule of sorts from a very weird place. It takes place on 42nd street in New York city In 1987, it's one of the weirdest movies you're ever going to see, and it's called Riot on 42nd Street. Next week, right here on Thursday Night Prime. So stay tuned for that. Uh, We are going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk some goofs, and we're going to wrap up the show. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real podcast, urging you to check out the Make Results, Not Excuses clothing company today. In 2017, Marcus and Jason began their fitness journey. And after the first day, both men looked at each other and wondered what they got themselves into. They were out of shape and struggled to initially find the motivation to keep going. It was a fight. Like many things you want in life, they worked hard and eventually found themselves in the best shape of their lives. When they realized they achieved their goal, Mark looked at Jason and said, Make results, not excuses. Being the fearless businessman that Jason was, he said, We need to put that on a shirt. And so the buzz began. They were so passionate about being a part of something positive and making something good out of a bad situation, whether it was fitness, business, health, lifestyle, or converting your daydreams into tangible visions, they didn't just love seeing people wearing it, they loved seeing people live by it. It's a movement and one that reaches people in all situations. Unfortunately, Jason left us too young and Mark is committed to carrying on his legacy. Tomorrow isn't promised. And if you wait until the last minute to achieve your goal, the opportunity may not be waiting for you. We promise to support the Make Results, Not Excuses community and our community includes everybody. Let's make this happen today. Check us out at MakeResultsNotExcuses.com. Again. That's make results, not excuses.com. So make results and not excuses starting now.
1: Welcome to
0: Goofs or Goofs. And we're back. That's pretty much it for us here on the show this week, but we're not quite done yet. As you know, there's always some goofs in the world. So the J, what do we got on the goof front this week?
1: Always got some goofs. Hey, Ed. And the first one was one that you put on my radar that we're calling out okay. here. It was posted by a uh, Twitter uh, member, Gary Dinsdale, Gary, D I N S D A L. And it's titled ultimate warrior comes to save Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and there's a, a situation in a convenience store. Uh, seemingly, I don't know if it's a mass situation where they're telling the guys to wear a mask, but two security guys, it's two on one are trying to physically get this guy out of the store and he's fighting with them and all laid overs to commentary from Bobby, the brain Heenan. And I'll play it in the background here. Like we, like we've been doing. Um, but this other guy comes in, that's his buddy to save him, And it might be the funniest thing of all time.
0: It's so goddamn. Hold on. Funny. Let me
1: uh, pull it up here. Uh, I was, I was dying, dude. Dying. Um, But, yeah, technical difficulties. I apologize. I can't play it in the background. I don't know if you can real quick. Hey, Ed. But it's Gary Dinsdale. And as always, we'll uh, put it on our Twitter at what's real pod one uh if you haven't um added us on twitter yet please do uh what's real podcast at what's real pod one um but yeah this, these guys all wrestling and scuffling with security guys with uh, wwf classic commentary from bobby heenan and the ultimate warriors music it fits perfectly fucking hilarious so glad you had sent that to me hey yeah Yeah, that's um, it's fucking complete, hilarious man complete goofed them And uh, the last one for this week, just a couple this week, um, it's one that I had sent you, and it it was posted by Tombstone Wyatt, and it has a naked man with a full man bod, (laughs) man boobies and everything, and this does have full male frontal nudity, and he's walking down a city street defiantly, completely naked. Stopping cars like cars have it, to go it around looks them like in the it's middle in of a busy street. Like
0: England or Germany or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the stores in the background says Anteca. It's like not an American store. Finally, he gets to a car that can't get past him. The guy gets out pissed off and hits him with a fucking left hook that puts this dude in another dimension. He was out before he even hit the asphalt. But definitely worth seeing. Uh look up uh you can't make this stuff up. Uh tombstone Wyatt. But naked man walking down the street gets knocked the fuck out. And as I say to hate y'all week in and week out, what can you say? Hate y'all goofs are goofs.
0: So thank you, guys. That is it for us this week on the show. If you have any comments, suggestions, or just death threats, anything you want to send to us, you could do so at the email address at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Give us a follow over on the Twitter as Jared said earlier, at What's Real Pod and the number one. Uh, We got all kinds of new videos and stuff going up for you guys throughout the week with a bunch of other additional content and announcements for the show. So it's a good place to follow what we're doing uh, day to day. Um, Also, if you're listening currently on iTunes, please give us a five-star review. Helps out the overall algorithm and gets more eyes and ears on the show each and every week. But you can listen as usual on iTunes, as we already said. Of course, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, every week you could listen at churchillpictures.com. So the J, start that engine up, brother, and get ready to take us home.
1: Yeah, we're revving at home quick and easy this week. Hey, you know, like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, there's no place like taking it home here on the What's Real podcast. Always the shout-out to our producer, the wonderful Cam. Great job, Cam, always week in and week out. We're adding all the bells and whistles. Hope you're enjoying the stuff. Like we said last week, we're not trying to plateau. We're trying to mold this clay and make it great and entertaining for everybody to, to come spend some time in our world. Love the show. Hey, you know, we do it again, man. Great shit this week. Always a pleasure. 32 down. Many, 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 many more to go. As I always say, you'll hear me next week. Stay safe. Stay healthy.
0: Right on the J. Uh, As usual, thanks to everybody for listening to the show. Please tell a friend about it. We'd like to get more people listening to the episodes, so we would appreciate you spreading the word. Uh, Thanks to our producer, the one and only Mr. Friday Morning himself, RVD rob van cam and i should have said rvc but you know what are you gonna do (laughs) rob van cam himself thank you for all the hard work he puts in for us here on the show each and every week the j there's nobody else i'd rather be doing it with man i appreciate you appreciate you sitting down with me each and every week here on the program that's it for us this week guys we'll see you next week for episode 33 stay safe stay healthy that's it for us right here on the what's real podcast
1: What's real? What's real? What's real? What's real? <laughs> the real question is What's, real? What's, real?
0: What's real?